Throughout church history, the pendulum has swung between expansion and opposition, growth and shrinkage, advance and retreat, although with the assurance that even the powers of death and hell will never prevail against Christ's church since it is built securely on the rock. John Stott, uh, the great, uh, I think we can call him the great, the uh, evangelistic uh, Anglican, um, wrote those words as he was um, thinking about, meditating on this very passage that we're going to look at today in Acts chapter 12. And I guess what I want us to to think about today is what God has going on, um, uh, we may not know. We may not understand all that God is, is trying to do and trying to accomplish um, in our own lives and around us. But God is doing something. God is great. And even in those times of opposition, in those times when the church seems to be shrinking rather than growing, in the, time, in the times where we feel like we're retreating, and, and being overwhelmed by the advance of the enemy, um, even in those times when it feels like death and the power of hell is at its strongest against us, we have a God who rescues His people. We have a God who has been rescuing His people from the very beginning. We have a God who, has, who created this world, set it in order, and before before Adam and Eve fell, before they sinned, he had a plan that was in place. Before the very first molecule existed in our universe, he had a plan in place to rescue. Our God is a God who rescues. Look with me at Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12 uh, we're not going to read this whole chapter. Um, the whole chapter is kind of one, uh, a, a one united story. Uh, both, both parts of it um, speak about uh, how we should respond to God's greatness and who God is and how we ought to give glory to God and seek Him out and how we respond. Uh, we're going to look at uh, the first half of this chapter today and next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at the, the, the rest of the story and how things turn out. But today I want us to look at this story of Peter and Herod. We're going to look at verses 1 through 17 together. So if you would, follow along with me as I read aloud Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 17. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. 
Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly! And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was going or excuse me, that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, uh, God, for for this word to us today. Pray that you will help us to understand and respond to it in the way that you would have us to do so. God, we need your presence here. May the words I speak be those that you want us to hear and, and meditate and dwell on. Uh, for your glory we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are four things, four ideas, four words that I want us to call, uh, call your attention to today. And um, I want us to think about today in relation to how God rescues. Prayer, peace, praise, and purpose. There you go. You got four Ps. All right? I, don't, I didn't know I could do it, but I, I, I pulled it together. I got you four Ps here today. All right? Um, it was going to be three Ps and an A, but then I thought that just, that just won't work. So, hey, it came to me. Prayer, peace, praise, and purpose. God rescues through earnest prayer. Let's look at this first um, section together. There's a lot of stuff going on. It's a, it's, a, it's a story. It's a narrative. Um, this is not necessarily a teaching passage, but what Luke is doing is he's writing this story and he's telling us all of these details, and all of them have significance to um, his readers and, and should to us as well. Um, but... It would take a few hours to, to, to just uncover every stone. We, we can't do that today, but we can look at some of the, the main purposes, I think, that Luke wrote this story. He first of all writes this, and he, he introduces Herod the king, and he talks about James the brother of John, and he, he refers to Peter, as well as the Jewish people who were living in Jerusalem at the time. He talks about unleavened bread and the Passover. I mean, all of these things are important. All these people are 
are important. Um, but all of them, at, at the beginning of this story, are, are driving us, are, are pushing us to this one phrase at the end of verse 5, and that is, but, he con- the contrast between Peter being in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. He's showing us the power of prayer, the effectiveness of prayer, the, the grace of God that is given to God's people to be able to pray to Him, to be able to go to Him and to give Him our needs and our requests and be earnest and, and, and intense and fervent about those prayers and, and, and then receive an answer and, and get a response from it. And God, I, I don't know why He does this, I, I don't have an answer for this. Maybe we'll come across this. Um, some of us, some of the men in, in the church, some of our, our leaders are going through some, some doctrinal studies. We're, we're studying theology. We're reading textbooks and things like that together. And we're getting together and we're reading about God. We're just kind of being, I am, I don't know about the other guys, but I'm being overwhelmed by all that God is for us in His person, in His works, in, in, his, in Christ, and how He's revealed Himself to us. And, and some, somehow, someway, in His providence, God says, I will work, I will rescue my people when they pray. I, will, I am here to do something for you. Will you pray? It's like it, some, some reason, he's got some reason for it, that he doesn't just do it automatically. Now, he does some things automatically. He just does stuff. And we go, I didn't even pray about that. I've not even been praying at all. But he, God just does something, and he blesses us, and we have a testimony to share. But the, the general, the general uh, direction of, of God and his work is that God responds to prayer. He wants us to be involved in that. Well, look what's going on. First of all, here's Herod. Herod the king. Now, we've had, uh, this is like the third Herod in the New Testament. It started out in Matthew, chapters 1 and 2, and Herod uh, the king there was Herod the Great. And now he had, he had gained control over Judea, um, right around the, t- the time that Christ was born, and he's doing all of this crazy stuff, and, and uh, he's setting up this great kingdom. And then uh, later on in the story of Jesus, there's another Herod um, that's mentioned, but that's, that's Herod's, Herod the Great's son. And then here we are, a few chapters into Acts, and we've got another Herod, and this is Herod's grandson. So, are you confused yet? Okay, don't, don't worry too much about it. But the, the, the point about this particular Herod is that he, at this time, in Acts chapter 12, had essentially gained control over all of the, the, the land and all of the rule that Herod the Great had. So, he's no longer just kind of Herod taking part of, or ruling part of Galilee, or just kind of ruling parts of Judea. He's got control over this whole thing, and he's kind of the big man um, in, this, in this part of the world. In fact, the emperor is Claudius. The emperor is Claudius at this time. And Herod, this Herod, was a schoolmate with Claudius. I found that out this week as I was reading about it. I thought that was interesting. He and the emperor were good buddies, school chums. 
You know, they knew each other back in college, in undergrad school. And, and Claudius is like, hey, my buddy Herod, yeah, hey, you know what? I'm going to hook you up. I'm going to give you authority over all of that region. That way, I don't have to send some, you know, Roman prefect out there who doesn't want to be in Judea anyway because it's such a backwards country. And, but I'll just give you charge of the whole thing. And that's Herod. He's in charge of all of it. But here's the thing. He, he wants to stay in charge. <laughs> and so he wants Jews and Romans to get along. He doesn't want there to be any trouble. So he is very conscientious of the Jewish laws. Like he really wants to follow these laws. And so he was known in history as one who was very pious, um, uh, kept, uh, kept and observed the Jewish law. And then when they came to him and said, hey, there are all these these Christians who are, are, are Jews, and, and they're really not following the laws, and they're actually doing things with the Gentiles that we don't like. Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 11. They're sharing the gospel with, with Gentiles. They're going and eating with them. They're hanging out with them. They're inviting them to their clubs. And, and the, the, the strict Jewish people who didn't believe in Christ, they didn't like that. So Herod's thinking, well, how can I... How can I um, appease them? Oh, I know. I'll lay violent hands on the apostles. It's time that we silence the apostles. So he starts off by, verse 2, killing James, the brother of John. So this is like Peter, James, and John had a little sailboat. Right, and that this is that James from the the very beginning, one one of the very first apostles to follow Jesus. Jesus says, James or Peter and Andrew, come follow me. And a little further, James and John, leave your nets, leave your 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 father Zebedee, and you follow me. That it's that James killed with a sword, and that's it. That's all we hear of him. We don't know why. We don't know what happened. We don't know the scenario. We don't know if there was a rescue attempt. We don't know if there was earnest prayer for James. But we know that James was killed with the sword just like that. And he's gone. And then he says, hey, everyone really liked that. Let me arrest Peter. And here's what he does. He puts him in jail. Now, it's ironic that Peter is in jail during the Feast of Unleavened Bread and that Herod wants to wait until after the Passover to bring him out. The, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the time of the Passover, does that sound like a familiar time in the story? Where have we seen people being arrested and held in jail um, during that period of time before? Jesus, in the Gospels, in the Passion account, um, Jesus arrested right before the Passover. And he's put in jail. And, and um, you know, at, at first the Jewish leaders then were like, we don't, we don't want to put Jesus to death now because, you know, all the stuff is going on. Well, then they have these sham trials. You remember the story of Jesus, right? Arrested, beaten, crucified. But here is Herod going, I don't want to upset the Jews. I'm going to keep him in jail. And, but there are a lot of sympathizers. The apostles have a lot of followers, a lot of disciples, a lot of people are paying attention to them. So I am going to put him in, in jail. I'm going to put four squads of soldiers. A squad was four Roman soldiers. These probably were Roman soldiers. And they were probably using the Roman fortress that was near the Temple Mount 
um, there in Jerusalem because, again, Herod is in control over this whole area. There's no Roman prefect there. He's the one in charge. And he's probably directing Roman soldiers to guard um, Peter until after the Passover. And there he is in prison. And it's interesting to think about the, uh, the contrast here between, um, between Herod's attempt at um, securing Peter and what the, what the church does in response. Because verse 5, it just, it just strikes me. Peter is kept in prison. He's in prison. He's in the fortress. Multiple gates. Uh, there are three gates leading from the city to where Peter is. And there are four squads of soldiers are probably rotating through. They probably, not all 16 of them were there right on the spot, but they probably rotated out every three hours during the night. But there's Herod doing everything he possibly can because he doesn't want to fail. And there's the church. What is the church doing? We got no weapons. We got no authority. We got no, we got no swords. We got no armor. We've got no army. We have prayer, though. John Stott again said, "Here, then, were two communities: the world and the church, arrayed against one another, each wielding an appropriate weapon." On the one side was the authority of Herod, the power of the sword, and the security of the prison. On the other side, the church turned to prayer, which is the only power which the powerless possess. We may be small, but we are mighty. Right? We may seem insignificant, but we have God on our side. We have His power through prayer. Ephesians 6, 10-20. Anyone meditate on that one recently? I have. If you don't know it, it's the armor of God passage. Right? The Apostle Paul saying, hey, uh, our battle is not our struggle and our fight. We, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities over this present darkness. There are spiritual powers that we, we fight against. So therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And he, he goes through the armor. Oh, we do have a helmet. We do have a breastplate. We do have a shield. We do have armor. We do have a sword. Sword of the Spirit. And he says, praying at all times, in all circumstances, in the Spirit. He gives us armor. He gives us His, his weapons, spiritual weapons, to put on with prayer. And in in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, We do not wage war according to the flesh. Our weapons have divine power to demolish strongholds. Those are, that is spiritual strongholds with spiritual weapons. I can't help but think that when Peter is right, or excuse me, Paul is writing something like that, and he's writing about divine power to demolish strongholds, he's thinking of all of the strongholds in which he was held. The kind of stronghold that Peter was held in. Physically restrained. But God is fighting our battles. God rescues 
through earnest prayer. All we have to do is look back and, and see this, the, the, how the story unfolded in the past. Exodus chapter 14, verse 14. Commit this one to memory. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Right? There they are. There are God's people. By some estimations, two million slaves escaping Egypt, sitting there on the edge of the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's army is coming down towards them. What shall we do? Shall we wail and weep and mourn? Shall we cry? Shall we argue? Shall we dispute? And God says to them through Moses, the Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Be silent before the Lord in prayer and wait for Him to rescue. Then there's David and Goliath. You know the story of little David, the shepherd boy, who goes out to meet Goliath. He doesn't, he can't carry that armor. He's not used to it. He can't carry uh, Saul's sword. It's too cumbersome. But he'll go out with his sling and his stone, because that's what he's used to. But he knows the Lord is on his side. And he stands before Goliath and says, The Lord saves, not with sword and spear. Later on, Psalm 20, the Psalm of David. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. My challenge to us is, are we going to be the people who pray like this? Do we believe that God rescues? Do we have that kind of theology, folks? Is that what we believe? If we believe that's the God that we serve, what is keeping us from that kind of earnest prayer? As a church, as individuals, we, we don't wait for the temple to open. We don't wait for the priest to be on duty. The whole book of Hebrews is all about how we have Jesus who's greater than all those things. And we have access to Him at any time. Earnest prayer is ours, just as it was for God's people right here. They weren't in the temple. <laughs> they had their homes that they were praying in for God to do something. That's a big point. That's like the majority of this message. <laughs> that God works and answers our prayer. But God also uh, rescues not just through earnest prayer, but God rescues and He does so to provide peace. He, pro- he rescues by providing peace. Just look at the next verse with me. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. <laughs> he gives sleep to his beloved. Psalm 127, verse 2. Oh. 
of you have hard hard time sleeping recently? Or at all, ever? Why wasn't Peter up all night wondering what's going to happen to me tomorrow? Is this going to be the end? Maybe a good Christian response would be, go ahead and press through the night and, and rehearse your defense. And, 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 ta- and, and work out a way that you're going to convince all of these powers to let you go. Because religious freedom and all that. And God is, 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 uh, uh, is the true God. And, and I have rights because of who I am and because of my citizenship. And, and, and worrying about what his defense was going to be. Ever been there? Why wasn't Peter up all night thinking about the past? Okay, forget about the future. He, maybe he's not worrying about the future. After all, um, Jesus said, don't worry about what you're going to say because the Holy Spirit will give you the word to say in that moment. Um, Matthew chapter 10. So wh- maybe he was worrying about his mistakes. Oh, my big mouth has finally gotten me into trouble. I said one too many things. I, I shouldn't have said that one thing about Herod. Oh, big mistake. You know, um, shouldn't have said that thing about the Romans. Shouldn't have, shouldn't have used that illustration. Shouldn't have shared that story or read that quote. Or, uh, you know, I, I made some mistakes. Maybe, I, maybe, maybe I'm finally being judged. Here I am, sitting in a jail during Passover, and my denial of Christ is finally catching up to me. Now, he wasn't worried about his past. He wasn't thinking about his mistakes. He was sleeping. He was at peace. A peace that surpasses all understanding. Maybe it finally dawned on him that the peace that Jesus gave in John 14, verse 27, was real, was true, was for him. Not as the world gives. Reminds me of Mark chapter 4. All of the disciples are straining at the oars. And they're going... Jesus, wake up! Don't you care that we're drowning? Mark says, by the way, Mark, who wrote his gospel based on, G- or based on Peter's own testimony in Rome, wrote, Jesus was asleep on a cushion. <laughs> hey, they had cushions in their fishing boat. Good thing to have when you're out there on the water. There is Jesus asleep. He's at peace. He's not worried about the storm. He's, he controls the storm. What's the big deal? The, the disciples, what the disciples failed to, to miss was not, the, the point there was not that, hey, Jesus can calm the storms in your life. The point was that they were in the boat with the I am. They had God. God. <laughs> 
with them. His presence with them. Peter remembers that. And he remembers that that I am was with me. So it doesn't matter what I'm going through. I don't really care what tomorrow holds. Because if they take my head from my body, God is with me. And I go to be with my Lord. If they let me go, God is with me. And I continue with the purpose that He has for my life. I'm not worried about the past. Jesus paid for the past. I'm not worried about the future. Because Jesus holds the future. Right here. Right now. In the presence. As in the present, I have the presence of God. What about you? How, friends, how, how are we, how are we dealing with the stuff that's going on in our lives? Do you understand the peace of God? Will you trust Him to be sovereign in the plans that He has for you right now that you may not be aware of? You may not understand how He's working, but God is here. And God rescues us to provide us peace. Will you trust Him? The anxiety, it just overwhelms our lives sometimes. As we think about our past mistakes, as we look to the future and we, we, we see murkiness, we see darkness, we see uncertainty, we don't know what that's going to hold. But rest in His perfect presence with you. He is with you. He is for you. Be prepared for them through prayer, brothers and sisters. The Lord rescues. And He did that here in this story. I won't rehash the story. You can see how the angel struck, struck Peter on the side and that's actually a violent word <laughs> in, in the New Testament and in the original language. I imagine he's probably, okay, this is probably what happened. The angel went in and said, Peter, hey, Peter. Peter's sleeping the sleep of the righteous, you know? I mean, he is, he is content. His conscience is clear. He's resting in the Lord. And, and the angel like, Peter, Peter. It's like, okay, doggone it. Boom! He just gives him a kidney punch. I don't know what he did. Peter's, he strikes him on the side, and Peter's like, whoa, 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 whoa. And of course, you know, this vision is violent, you know. I don't understand. I've never had a violent vision before. But the angel of the Lord was insistent. Get up quickly. And he gives him all these directions one after a time. And, and each time, the, do this, and, 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 and Peter does this. And he, okay, do this, and Peter does this, and do this, and Peter does this. And suddenly he's outside the fortress, probably middle of the night. It's Passover, so it's, it's, it's springtime. And it's probably cold. And, and that, you know, that's why... The, the angel said to get your cloak, you know, wrap it around you, but he gets out there and breathes in the night air and suddenly it dawns on him, this is real. I'm out here in the middle of the night and I'm free. And then he says in verse 11, now, now, now that he's come to his senses, I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel to rescue me. Right away, 
right away he recognizes that God is rescuing him. He doesn't, he doesn't um, credit an insider, somebody who is uh, maybe a, a sympathetic guard, or, or somebody who uh, worked in that place who, who was a secret follower of Jesus. Everything about this is miraculous. Shouldn't have been surprising to Peter because the same thing happened to him and the other apostles back in Acts chapter 5 when they were rescued in a, in a similar way from, a, from the jail. And the next morning they go to get him and they go, what's going on? You know, where did everybody go? The Lord. It's the Lord who has rescued him. God rescues us through earnest prayer. God rescues us um, to provide his peace, the peace of his presence. And God rescues us for praise, for the praise of his people. The next part of the story is even more humorous. <laughs> here's, this, here's this poor girl named Rhoda who um, a little discombobulated, I guess would be a good way of putting it. She goes to the door um, of this home that they're staying in. It, it had to have been a large home because it had a gateway and there's servants there. And so probably this Mary, not the mother of Jesus, but another Mary, was probably fairly wealthy. But since there's no mention of a husband, um, she's probably a wealthy widow who lives there in Jerusalem. And uh, many were gathered, but it doesn't say the whole church was gathered there, but this is probably a missional community. They're probably all getting together in their missional community at somebody's home. And they're, they're, they, there's a need. There's, there's something special, important going on. And, and Peter, this, this brother of theirs, is in need. And they're gathered there and they're just holding an all-night prayer vigil. This is where the earnest prayer is, is taking place. And so there they are praying once again, verse 12, and Rhoda answers the door, and, and in verse 14, she recognizes it's Peter's voice. It's Peter out there. It's dark. There's probably not floodlights, right? I mean, it's dark out there outside the gate, and those were not big. Um, the, that would not have been an iron gate. Probably there would have been a pretty decent size kind of wall um, built up around that that house, and it was probably a large wooden gate, probably pretty tall. Um, have you guys ever watched the movie Ben-Hur? You remember, you know the gate, and that kind of, Judah Ben-Hur had a pretty nice house there in the middle of Jerusalem. It was just like that. It was just like that. It was exactly like that. Okay. Um, but she hears a voice, and, and it says, in her joy, or, or literally full of, she was full of joy, and she goes to the people, and she goes, you won't believe it, Peter's out there. And you're like, come on, quit playing a trick on us. Come on. This Rhoda, she's always teasing. Well, I, I don't know if that's true or not, but, but they thought she was crazy. You're out of your mind. It can't, it can't possibly be. We heard the report. He's in the middle of Antonia Fortress and there are four squads of soldiers rotating through, keeping guard on him. It's impossible. And then they go, well, maybe it is his angel. Okay, so what was that? Well, they might have thought, as some of the Jewish people believed at that time, that every person had a guardian angel and that that guardian angel would sometimes make appearances to loved ones 
in the form of that person. So maybe this is Peter's angel standing there to maybe give them a message. Or maybe he's already been put to death in the jail. And this angel, this messenger, because the, the, the original Greek word is angelos, which could be, could be the angel like what we think of as a supernatural being sent from God that he created, or it could be uh, just any kind of, it could be a human messenger or maybe a spirit. Maybe, as some of them believe, that when somebody died, their spirit would appear to loved ones. And maybe that's his angel. Maybe he's already been put to death. Our prayers were not answered. Maybe they're disappointed. But they keep hearing the knocking. And suddenly like, oh, wait a minute. I hear the knocking too. Maybe we should check this out. And so what happens? Verse 16, Peter continues knocking. The door was open. They saw him. And look at that. They were amazed. They were amazed, it says. I I love the word because... um, the word amazed is used all throughout Acts. <laughs> all throughout. People are amazed at what they see. People are amazed at what they hear. And every time that word is used, it's God has done something. God has... That's my A. Okay, that's my A. I changed it to a P. I took it from amaze to praise. Because what happens is the joy, the amazement, and then look what... Look what um, uh, uh, Peter says in the next verse, verse 17, but motioning them to be, to, with his hand to be silent, hey, keep it down. We got, let's get inside the building. Gosh, there's so Roman soldiers, you know, uh, going up and down the streets here. Okay, he describes to them, probably telling the, the previous story, how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Now, we don't see, Luke doesn't say, a spontaneous worship service broke out. We don't say there was singing. We don't see what we saw in previous passages in chapter 10 where the Holy Spirit comes on the Gentiles and they speak in tongues and they're extolling God. We don't see that in back in chapter 2 at Pentecost when everyone hears them declaring the, the, the majesty and the magnificent things of God. We don't see that specifically in this text. But if there's anything I know about the people of God, old and new covenant, is that the people of God are worshiping people. And when there's something to praise God about, they praise Him. That's why every week, what's God been doing in your life? Because we should be a praising people, amazed at what God has done. And you know why they were probably amazed? I'm going to make this point here too. This is a sub-point. They've been praying for Peter. But they're amazed at the way God answered that prayer. Have you ever been praying for something? And then suddenly God answers it, sort of. But not the way you expected it to be. (laughs) We have a God who is able to do far more than we can ask or imagine. Ephesians chapter 2. God does things that we cannot possibly comprehend. Actually, it's Ephesians chapter 3. I'm sorry. God answered their prayer 
in an unexpected way. Here's probably what they're praying for. I'm sure they're praying for God's will to be done. They learned that from Jesus. Not my will, but your will be done. In, in Jesus' agonizing prayer, the same word for earnest prayer in verse 5 was used about Jesus in the garden. God, your will be done, not my will. Jesus prayed. So surely, surely God's people were praying for His will to be done. But they were probably also praying, would you let Him be released? Would you change Herod's heart? Would you, you, you know, you're the God who, who, who steers hearts of kings. Would you do this, God? And they're probably praying for that. And, and maybe they are praying for Peter's release. Maybe they're praying that this Passover, um, the, the people will, will get enough people gathered together so that when he brings him out, we can say, release for us. Remember, the, the ruler at the, every Passover had this, had this uh, uh, a tradition of releasing a prisoner to the people. And instead of releasing Jesus, they released Barabbas. Maybe we'll get enough people out there, gathered together, we'll get those flyers out, and we'll get enough of a crowd, and we can be like, release Peter, and Herod will be released. Maybe that's what they're praying for. More numbers. Critical mass. Some any of you who have done any church planting reading will love that one. But what they get was a miracle. What they get was God rescuing in a way that they... Uh, uh, should they have expected it? Maybe. But there they are. They're still amazed. And that is the proper response of God's people to the work of God. Amazement, i.e. praise, thanksgiving, worship. God rescues His people so that the praises of His people will be stirred up in them. That's the God that we serve. That's the God that we see here. And then, here's an interesting one. Very end of this, this verse, he says, tell these things, okay, pass this on to James and to the brothers. And that's how we know that, that the whole church, wasn't, they, they didn't have a building that they all gathered in in Jerusalem. It wasn't First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. It was all kinds of little, little churches all over the place. Little house churches, little communities that were gathered throughout. And he's like, hey, tell this to James. Who's this James? Who's this kind of, this other James? And this James is the brother of Jesus. This is, this is James, um, we call him stepbrother. James, earthly brother. Another child of Mary who who, after Jesus' resurrection, put his faith in his own older brother and believed and becomes an important part of the Jerusalem church and historically becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem up until A.D. 68 when he is put to death by one of the high priests. But in the meantime, there's James and the other brothers, so that would be the other um, brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, tell it to them, because they're gathered in another place. They're praying earnestly somewhere else. And then it says, he departed and went to another place. And I thought a lot about that. 
I thought a lot about that little phrase this week. And this is what I came up with. God rescues us for a purpose. God rescues us for a purpose. He didn't. Here's here's what God didn't do in this story. He didn't keep James, the brother of John, from losing his head. James became the first apostle, the first of the twelve, to die a martyr's death. He didn't rescue him. He must have had a plan for that. He must have had a plan and a purpose for, for the death of that apostle. Somehow, God's, it, it, God was going to be glorified, the church was going to be strengthened and equipped through that tragedy, through that loss. Maybe it happened so that in verse 5, the church would be in earnest prayer for Peter. Maybe they had lost their praying edge as a church. Maybe. But there's Peter departing to another place, and we know not where. Doesn't say. And none of the experts know either. He went to Antioch. No, I'm just, okay, I'm just kidding. I don't really know that. He did go to Antioch eventually, but we don't know where he went. But what did he do? What was his purpose? Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in all Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And Peter had already been to, throughout Judea. He'd already been throughout Judea and Samaria. Um, did I just say that? He'd already been throughout Samaria. And now, maybe this was his opportunity to go outside of that and to go where it was going to be safe for him but where the gospel needed to be heard. God rescues us for a purpose. And that purpose is to maintain our witness, to live for Christ. That's why we are alive. It doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter what we have done or what we've experienced. We are alive today because Jesus, because God, the Holy Spirit has a plan and a purpose for us and for our lives. The Apostle Paul captured it this way. For me, Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He understood that if he continued to live beyond the next day, beyond the next breath, his life purpose was for Christ. And he had specific gifts, he had specific places to be, but his life was for Christ. Many of us have thought about our willingness to die for Jesus. What if it comes down to Die or reject Christ. Will you hold fast to Jesus in this moment? And many of us have, 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 have said, I think I would be willing to lose my life for Jesus. But that's really not the question before us. The question before us is, are you going to live for Jesus? Right now, in the life that you have. To live for Christ, for, for, for Paul, in the context of Philippians, that meant the gospel, the good news of Jesus. It meant the glory of God in the church. It meant the joy of other people in them coming to faith in Jesus. It was all about that purpose. 
And he didn't say that because he was saying, well, that's just my Christian ethic. That's just my Christianity. That's just my calling. He said that because in Philippians 3, he said, imitate me. Follow my example and others who are following this example of following Christ and living for Christ. It's for every one of us. It's not for great missionaries. It's not for pastors or preachers. It's not for church planters. It's for every believer. Are we willing to live for Christ? mentioned Ben-Hur. <laughs> There's a great moment in that, in that movie where Ben-Hur has, has been shipped off on a, on a galley ship and there he is rowing with a bunch of other slaves in the belly of this ship. And there's the, the commander, the, maybe the captain of the ship. He's a Roman commander and And he tells Ben-Hur, we keep you alive to serve this ship. Right? Remember that? I don't know. Okay, go watch the movie, the original one. He says, we keep you alive to serve this ship. That's that's your purpose. Otherwise, we'd put you to death. But you're alive because we want you to be alive to serve this ship. Well, turnabout, you know... Things happen. It's a big old battle at sea, right? And the ship is going to sink. And Ben Hurst escapes, and and he notices the, the commander is um, he's 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 injured, he's hurt, he's going to drown, and he, he actually saves him, rescues him, brings him aboard this this piece of of you know ship that's just floating out there that becomes a life raft for them, and the. Uh, commander wakes up after all this stuff is going on and he looks around and he sees that things are devastated, his ship was lost and as far as he knows, the battle was gone he lost the battle and he's going to com- commit suicide, he's going to he's going to run a sword through himself and Ben Hur says, no, don't do that he takes the sword away from him and then he says we keep you alive to serve this ship and now, now it's turned around. Now the purpose, the commander's purpose is to uh, keep that little raft afloat until they're finally rescued. Well, there's more to that story. But I began to think about that. I began to think about where we are and our Christian life. Now, when we, when we think about the kind of ship that we're on, many of us, would balk at, at, at the Christian life being like on a galley ship. And I think we're right. There's some analogy, there's a, the analogy doesn't go, doesn't, doesn't go that far. But most of us are wrong when we think about the, the Christian life as a cruise ship, as a luxury liner, as all of the amenities are there for us, and everything is all-inclusive. And the buffet and the entertainment. And, and you know what? The Christian life is a beautiful and wonderful and abundant thing. And so we imagine a world in which, a Christian life in which all of these things are going well for us. 
and life is good, and life is, is happy, and there shouldn't be any problems, and sh- so we run away from those things. But that's not what the Christian life is meant to be. In reality, we exist to serve the ship, and the ship is not a luxury cruise ship. It's a battleship. We've been put out to sea with our commander in charge. And he keeps us alive, every single one of us, to serve him in joy, in his power that he gives us. Because there is a battle going on, my brothers and sisters. There's a battle going on around us every day, all day long, in every one of our households, in every one of our communities. And God has a purpose for us. Now, I'm not saying every one of us has to be an evangelist. Like We don't have to be Billy Graham. Um, we have a purpose. We have gifts. We have unique ways in which we serve Him. And all of that's going to look different. But it should look like a Christian looks, as we saw last week in Acts chapter 11. And it should look like battle. Do I need to remind us? The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. The Lord saves not with sword and spear. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. God who rescues his people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for speaking truth to us through your word. I ask that you will transform us. That you will move and change in us. To recognize You are a God who rescues. You are are our God. You are great. Lord, may we be a people who pray earnestly. God, may we be a people who rest in your perfect peace and in the presence that you give us. Lord, may we be a people who offer praise to you and honestly are just amazed and overjoyed at all that you have done for us. May we be a people who live out the purposes that you have for us, for your glory and our joy. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.